and welcome to the Common Good Podcast, the podcast that showcases the very best of Glasgow Caledonian University and how the institution, its staff and its research benefits people and communities, both at home and overseas. My name is Craig Telfer and today I am joined by Dr. Leslie Holdsworth, a Senior Lecturer in Physiotherapy at the University and the Clinical Lead for Digital Health and Care with the Scottish Government. Leslie, thank you very much for joining me on today's show. Delighted to be invited. And I'm really excited to talk to you because we're going to look at the work you've been doing with the Scottish Government over the past three months in particular and how you've helped two thirds of Scotland's clinical working force, which is more than 100,000 people, work remotely using Microsoft Teams and 70,000 doing remote consultations. So we'll start off, Leslie. Tell us a bit about your role with the Scottish Government. Well, um, as you said, Craig, I'm the uh, clinical lead for digital health and care. I've been in this role for nearly five years now. Um, I am a physiotherapist by background, but I've, I've had numerous sort of national level roles uh, covering lots of disciplines uh, for the last 20 years. But um, I came into this role because I'm passionate. Uh, I could see how technology, how digital solutions were the future for healthcare. So um, because of various things I was involved with, the Scottish government were very keen for me to come and work with them. Um, I'm one of four uh, clinical leads. Um, I there are um, the the others are medics. Um, however, I am also uh, work very closely with uh, both of those, and also we have a nurse advisor. So my colleague Mark Fleming from NHS Ayrshire uh, works with us um, a day a week as well. So I think between um, the four of us, we tend to cover all the main professions. But I tend to lead on the allied health professions, which obviously includes physiotherapy. So my role is really to be the conduit between clinical practice and policy. So for example, um, nearly two years ago now, we published a new digital strategy. So my role was heavily to be involved in that and help with the the crafting of of the national strategy. But it's also then to, it works both ways. It's a two-way conduit. So my, my role is to represent the view of clinicians, the clinical needs, the clinical workforce, so that policy is actually grounded in reality and pragmatism. So that's my role. So once we set policy, then I sort of put on another hat and uh, my role is to support implementation of policy. I'm at the, at the front edge with, with clinical staff. We're actually helping uh, um, and I can actually see now uh, the policy enacting itself and really getting a grip and some traction um, with the clinical workforce. So very exciting times for us. How do you combine your role with the Scottish Government with your role at the university? Well, I'm really fortunate and I'm really grateful for the the university sponsoring me in this way. So if you like, the arrangement I have at at Glasgow is that the predominantly the amount of, I only work part time, but predominantly the most amount of my time is spent on national issues. But obviously I'm representing the university in in that role. But I also uh, run masterclasses in digital health. I uh, advise the uh, school on issues around technology. We've put on training programs for higher education institutions, including GCU. So actually to upskill the lecturers and the staff, because how can we prepare our students for the future world when, um, you know, the staff have to have those, Mm. those skills as well. I also have um, some PhD students who are uh, undertaking PhDs in 
technology related issues um, in social media, etc. So um, it, it's a really good arrangement. I'm very grateful to GCU for recognizing the need for this and for supporting me in this way. So I hope that I give, uh, give back to GCU as well as them supporting me. You kind of touched on this earlier, Leslie. You mentioned Scotland's digital strategy. What is it and how does your role as the clinical lead feed into that? Well, basically, we've had some iteration of digital strategy for oh, 30 years. But this one, I think, is, is a, a mind step, um, a real difference this time around. It's really focused on the individual. So, and you can even tell by the language, it's always written in, I expect, I want to, I want to engage with health professionals in this kind of way. So it's coming from the voice of the citizen. And what the strategy um, sets out, it's, it's um, a nice piece of work. I think it's the, definitely the best that they've ever produced. Because, and the reason I say it's the best, because it's grounded, grounded in what we should be doing. It's not in high-level policy speak. The six main areas, which include things like transformation of services, it's about building the infrastructure. But the, the, my passion is about developing a digitally enabled workforce. And that's where um, I spend a lot of my uh, time nationally within government and also obviously from a GCU perspective. Um, it's about building that workforce that can actually engage with technology, who understand it and who actually see where and when it can be best used. And I might add, it's not always the, t the, the case that we should be using technology. It's not to replace everything, but it has its own place at the right time and um, with the right patient. That leads nicely on to my next question. And it might be a bit of a thick question, but what are the benefits from working digitally and using platforms like Microsoft Teams? Well, I think um, if we use uh, our present situation as a prime example of that, Craig, yeah. then... Um, um, I think suddenly uh, everybody has really appreciated the role that, that technology can play in supporting them to undertake their day-to-day their -day job. So before the pandemic came along, shall we say, my role was very much around engaging with those who really got it quickly. There were others who we were trying to engage with who were open but not convinced. And it's very hard for clinical people who have trained and practiced for many years to be or, or to think they've always need to be in a face to face situation with a patient, have to be able to lay their hands on to be able to diagnose, assess and treat. So the thought of having an interface between them and the patient is a bit alien to their professional psyche. So, you know, it's a cultural challenge as much as anything else. And I always say to people, um, I'm not focused on the technology. I'm focused on the change management. And to me, it's a process of change management in the same way that you would approach anything that's to do with change. But the benefits for me are uh, considerable. And if we take even our own country of Scotland and just think about it um, in terms of its geography, it's a third of the, the landmass of the UK. And we have a tenth of the population of the UK. So that tells you that actually we have a, a one in five people who live remotely. So imagine you're that person who wants to access any kind of healthcare. That invariably means a trip somewhere. And if you need any specialist care, it's a major, major trip somewhere, including it could be a, a, a flight on a plane. 
So you know, just think about the benefits if you were able to link with um, a healthcare professional in your in, in the specialty that you were uh, wanting to get some advice or guidance or have an assessment from without having to leave your island or to travel on a road for two, three hours, et cetera. So if, if we, you know, those are the benefits that are very obvious and they then, you know, but those benefits also translate to the cities and the urban areas, let alone the semi-rural areas. Everybody's time is precious. I don't really want to spend hours um, sitting in my GP, you know, traveling to my GP surgery in the middle of my working day. You know, being able to access them either our telephone, even and when we're talking about digital, it includes telephone, telephone, video consultation, even asynchronous, i.e., I send my information in and somebody looks at it in a, at a different time and comes back to me, I think is really helpful for everybody's lives are busy. Mm. But even if we think about the impact on the environment, you know, the reduction in the need to travel, the CO2 rates, the, um, as I say, just the environmental impact of people not having to travel, their benefits to society on a whole, benefits to um, employment, um, less time off work, etc. So the whole economy um, is benefiting by us using some degree of technology. So, you know, from a patient perspective, um, convenience, you know, that you might have other, other commitments, let alone work or caring for family members or children or older people, etc. So, um, you know, at a patient level, um, there are considerable benefits. And I think our present experience, those are really coming to the fore. High levels of satisfaction, uh, 97% of, of highly satisfied with video consultation during this present pandemic. And of course, people don't want really want to go um, leave their own homes um, unless they really have to. So being able to not be rem um, completely cut off from speaking to healthcare practitioners um, via sort of using technology, I think has been really well received by the public. Prior to the coronavirus pandemic, Leslie, what sort of targets were you working towards? That's really interesting. So to give you an example, the two main planks, if you like, of our work during the last three months has been the rollout at pace and scale of um, Microsoft Teams. And the second thing has been the video consultation uh, major platform we, we use in Scotland called Near Me. Sometimes people call it Attend Anywhere, but it's been rebranded and called Near Me. And these were always on our agenda and we had targets that we were trying to meet in terms of the team's rollout was for all staff by September 21. Then near me was incrementally creeping up and we were doing a lot of engaging with uh, healthcare practitioners. Um, and I'll give you a hot off the press, um, some stats around that. In, in February of this year, 300 near me video consultations took place this morning i looked at the dashboard there were over a hundred thousand that took oh, place that's extraordinary it's between march and and, and may so march so march april and may a hundred thousand uh, video consultations took place is it safe to say then leslie that the the covid19 pandemic that really pushed this shift necessitated this shift to working digitally Yes, very much so. And even if we think about, um, I think this this whole pandemic, because um, I sat, sit on the government task force, really uh, the 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 imminent 
criticality of it really was brought home to me after one of our command meetings. And that was, I would say, about two and a half to three weeks before lockdown. And that's when I came away and thought, my goodness, this is really, this is going to be really serious. Mm -hmm. When we were planning on how many ITU beds we're going to need, et cetera, Mm -hmm. that really brought it home. And that again, ramped up our efforts to think, well, um, how can we get as many staff working remotely as possible, as quickly as possible? At that time, we were anticipating we might even lose 30% of the workforce due to the fact that they would either have to shield themselves Mm -hmm. or have a family member or they might have to self-isolate because they thought they might be infected, and therefore we would lose that capacity in the workforce. However, a lot of people who who have needed to self-isolate have not gone on to be unwell, and they could manage a a big proportion of their, their caseload from home if they had the mechanism to do that. So, you know, capacity within the NHS was one of the major drivers, but also the other two thirds, we need to, you know, we don't need a lot of people who are traditionally based in hospitals or health centers to actually be there to do their work. So if they could be safely and quickly set up at home to um, still have direct link with their peers, could communicate with their patients, could provide a, a good service from the, the, you know, the safety of their own home. We were not only introducing, if you like, contingency planning for, for, work, for the workflow, but also safeguarding our, our, our clinical workforce themselves. So that was crazy. So for example, we talked about Teams, and I know GCU um, uses Teams. I think everybody in the world is using Teams now, the whole world. Yeah, I, think, I think the advert says is running on Teams. Yes, it is. Yeah. yeah. But um, to give you an idea of that, it was fabulous. Uh, our technical uh, partners, our IT colleagues, our e-health colleagues just played a blinder and were working 24-7 solidly for two weeks. And up until lockdown uh, by lockdown um, there were 220,000 licenses made available to the NHS workforce of 160,000 and and I might add with the generosity of Microsoft who provided a lot of expertise and technical expertise free of charge to enable us to do this they supported our, our technical teams throughout that time and um, and also made available uh, many more licenses than we were contracted for to actually support us in managing the pandemic. Logistically, just trying to get my head around training so many people in such a short space of time, how on earth did you manage it? And were you ever daunted by what lay ahead of you? Oh gosh, very much so. But you know, <laughs> you know, but when when you're in the thick of it and you know it has to be done, it's yeah. amazing where yeah. you know the efforts and the and the the whole team just pulled together. So how we did it was um, we have a, a national team based at National Services Scotland NSS, who um, are the, the national Microsoft team. And then they got all the licenses and then divvied them up and send them out to all the health boards. And then the local health board teams then onboarded all the local staff onto that. So it was a process that was managed uh, really in, in a devolved way. And then in terms of the training, the national team produced uh, training uh, materials that obviously that were mainly available on, online. So um, we tried to be very consistent and just have one set so that we, uh, we signposted everybody to the same material for consistency and quality, etc. Um, but then we also, we adopted very um, shamelessly, you know, said, just get get 
up to speed and, and, and you know, tap somebody on the shoulder who's using it. Just ask anybody mm-hmm. and even uh, metaphorically, you know, phone somebody up and get them to give you a wee run through of how to use it. And I was amazed at everybody, you know, ch- how they rose to this challenge. Um, and I'm, I know that many people as yet probably don't understand the full functionality of it, but they know enough to keep in touch mm-hmm to share information, to make calls, to make video calls, et cetera, and um, enough to, you know, to get them through. And, and it was very much a need, on a needs-must basis. Did you encounter any challenges when you were putting this in place? Because what you're saying, it sounds like, even though it's quite a big task, it sounded like it went fairly straightforward. I suppose the issue is, you know, um, the major challenge was just time and um, the the access of mainly the local technical teams. So each board is devolved in terms of how it organizes its um, its tech support, shall I say. And some of them have more staff than others. And that was it was just capacity issue. So uh, for many of the profession, and it was done on a priority basis, the onboarding. So what was seen is if the pandemic is going to hit us next week, who are the mo- who's at the top of the list that need to be onboarded first? Okay. And, and to be fair, a lot of the, um, the, shall we say, the nursing and allied health professions were much further down the list. But I, you know, I have no compunction with that. I mean, we needed people like um, the executive teams. We needed the A&E guys. We needed the primary care, the GPs, the people who were going to be first seeing the first wave of the pandemic. They are the people that needed the instant access to that. And so, you know, the the, the pecking order, if you like, was set by the um, the criticality of everybody's roles at that time. So as we got down, so more and more people got on board. So the challenges that you asked me about were really the capacity in the system. And uh, as I say, some boards were able to um, uh, release more capacity than others, uh, but all of them have done a fantastic job. Was there any resistance from staff members about embracing this way of working? I'm sure there must be. I'm sure there must be. <laughs> But I'm fortunate in many respects. I have um, many, many networks and have been speaking to numerous people. And the only people who ever approach me are the ones that want to know more and want to learn more. And a really good example, we've been uh, partnering up with our colleagues in NES in, in NHS Education Scotland. And about four weeks ago, we ran, in one week, we ran five webinars just for allied health professionals that particular week and by the end of Friday and that was on things like how to use near me how to use teams what the benefits were we got people who were using them the the kit out there the actual clinical workforce to actually talk about it and give a demonstration of how they're using it etc those webinars were oversubscribed and we had 2,000 available on each license uh, when you think there's, I think there's 13,500 allied health professions in Scotland, over 6,500 have viewed those webinars within seven days. Right. So, you know, you're talking about nearly half the workforce. So what does that tell me? That tells me we've got loads of people out there who are desperate to, mm. to find ways to work safely and uh, technology is, is being recognised as the way to do it. And I'm sure it doesn't suit everybody, without a doubt, but... <laughs> You know, yeah, of course, yeah. I think, think for most people, we'd rather be in the office. But if you can't do the office, Microsoft Teams is a good way to bring people together. 
Is there any way, we mentioned at the start of this podcast, Leslie, that, that you've got two-thirds of Scotland's clinical working staff using Microsoft Teams. What about the other third? Is there plans to bring them up to speed? Yes, very much so. And I think that, that there is nothing stopping anybody using it now other than their own choice or perhaps their understanding and knowledge. Mm. And, and, um, and I think it's like anything, particularly when um, it's unfamiliar to us, we, there are some that take to it like duck to water. There are others that are a bit mm, not sure about this and a bit reluctant. Those just don't have the confidence. And if you think a lot of people are working remotely, so they don't even have that somebody sitting next to them saying, you know, to, to actually say, look, this is how you do this and this is how you do that. But I think that what we've seen in the last 10 weeks, 12 weeks will stay with us forever, you know, in terms of that. We've got a few folk who we definitely need to bring up to speed, but we, I think we've reached the tipping point now, and that's the vital thing. As well as training up staff on using Microsoft Teams, you've also helped implement uh, remote consultations using video conferencing. What's the response been like to that? Again, totally phenomenal. And if you, Every GP practice um, now is undertaking video consultation um, uh, with their patients. For example, we've got um, nurses, uh, allied health professions using it, and some other stats that I was looking at last night, because uh, we get a dashboard of, of every week of, of uh, the uptake rate. And you can just see week by week, there's like, um, last week there was a 7% increase. The week before there was a 17% increase. Um, we're suddenly up to crazy numbers of, um, of uh, care that's been provided over video consultation. And why it's so important is that just, yes, we're having to deal with a pandemic and we're having to deal with people who've, um, who are very unfortunately have got COVID symptoms, but there's the rest of it, the everyday, the normal business as usual stuff to keep going. Um, and I think we've heard a lot of talk in the media about people's reluctance to go to hospital, mm. how quiet A&Es are, GP surgeries for stuff that, you know, that they would normally be turning up with. But we've also got to remember we're storing up some problems for the future. So the more business as usual we can do using technology now, then the, the, then the better it's going to be when we start relaxing things a bit more. Do patients respond well to video consultations? On the whole, yes, definitely. And again, I think it comes back to the point we're talking about is people are reluctant. You know, the majority of the population have really heeded the word to stay, you know, the words to stay at home yeah. uh, very well. They also don't, as I say, don't want to go to hospitals or GP surgeries because they're worried that they're going to catch something there. So actually having that ability to be in that, uh, their own home, feel safe and have an interaction like we're having today um, has been very well received by the public. Now, I think I, I said at the beginning, we're not advocating that this kind of um, interaction is ideal for absolutely everything because it isn't, but it has its place. And at the moment, it, it, it's really coming to the fore. So what are the next stages for your work with the NHS, Leslie? At the moment, we, well, in fact, for the last six weeks, um, we've been planning for recovery and what we call remobilization. So all the, the major work that we were doing, uh, we were able to get the facilities out there, etc. Then there was a period of consolidation and training. Now we're focusing on ramping up all of that training and the comfort, people being in the comfort zone with using mm -hmm. technology. 
but also looking at what the pathways are going to be because we know that over the next year to 18 months things aren't just going things are not going to go back to how they were with they're definitely not we're also from a health services perspective we're going to have significant challenges we're going to have to deal with people with with long-term um, rehabilitation needs as a consequence of them having the covid infection and you know they're going to need specific care then we've also got uh, to deal with those that we haven't been dealing with um, whose conditions may have um, deteriorated as a consequence of that and so a good example um, for in my sort of area in physiotherapy we have not been uh, there have been no knee and hip replacements done for example yeah so you know during that time people um, who are in pain and reduced mobility have a, a decreased um, just general fitness so then eventually hopefully they'll have their their replacement done their rehabilitation requirements post-operatively are going to be greater than they were if they'd had it done four mm-hmm. months ago so there's going to be challenges like that we've got to overcome and so we're planning on what the pathways will look like and what I always say to people is um, I get often inquiries from clinical staff by saying oh um, I've heard about this whatever um, technology Um, could I use it for this and or management of this kind of condition or that condition so what I always say to them is forget about the technology sort out what the pathway needs to be for the patient first and foremost then we can actually layer on the technology because there's various kinds of things that are available to us um, at the moment so that that is a a really a strong part of our thinking we're also um, within government we're doing uh, we're having a lot of conversations with other health health technology providers so uh, we've just signed a contract for um, a major piece of software that we foresee will be uh, have a real significant role in remote monitoring of of conditions or uh, and a focus on helping people self-manage so um, the more the more information and support that we can provide to people to encourage them to to self-manage and they feel confident they know what they're doing and they're doing it safely not to the detriment of anything else I think will be you know a key focus of what we're going to be doing moving forward just listen to you talk there, Leslie. That's a, a remarkable amount of work and a remarkable amount you've achieved over the last three months. Have you had a chance to sort of take a step back and sort of reflect on it at all? Uh, probably not. <laughs> um, <laughs> however, one thing I did do right at the start, I would say three weeks before when we started really ramping up our preparation for this, is I've kept a journal. Right, okay. And, right. and what I intend to do is because I think sometimes you know, when you're on these trajectories, you think, well, what happened on March the 16th? I can't remember. When did we do this? Or what was the issue we had to deal with on that day? So I thought, well, I'm definitely going to keep a journal of some of the key things and when when they happened, because at some point, I hope in the not too distant future, I will be able to sit down and do that reflection piece, because what I would like to do is to fully uh, record this, write a paper on it about uh, lessons learned, basically, good and bad. And I think you can only do that if you've actually got that timeline in front of you. Mm-hmm. I mean, one of the things that I did do, I, I suppose I, I, I lost sleep one night, and this was probably three weeks when I when when the 
the penny dropped with me how how serious this could be and this was going to be was I wasn't sure whether a lot of my colleagues actually my clinical workforce colleagues actually understood this and really I think it was starting to dawn but I think they were a bit like rabbits in headlights they weren't sure what they should be doing so I couldn't sleep one night because I was sort of concerned about this so I just got up and wrote a blog that blog has been uh, read uh, 243,000 times. I checked this morning. Yeah, I've, I actually read that when I was uh, pulling together the notes for this podcast. Very interesting. Yeah. But that was really because, you know, I felt, you know, we've got a, a, a little window to prepare everybody, to get everybody safe and uh, as possible and get them as productive as possible. But off the back of that, um, I ended up, speaking with um i've got good contacts in in the southern hemisphere both in australia and new zealand and um uh, in in the in the digital field um and i've done quite a bit of work with them so they contacted contacted me very early on in this and um i was running uh webinars with the leads in uh, australia and new zealand um at some ungodly hour in the morning for me because they were two weeks or three weeks behind us so they had if you like you know, when we're talking about the reflection, the learning, I was able to compartmentalize some of that because I had to, because we were, I, w- I was saying, well, you know, this week, I think you should be focusing on getting that done. Then you need to be thinking about this and, you know, et cetera, et cetera. So that was really uh, the best in terms of any reflection I've done, but I'm going to do lots more. Leslie, that was absolutely fantastic. Thank you so much for your time. Really enjoyed speaking to you. No, absolutely fantastic. And and thank you. It's been a, a whirlwind of the three months for everybody, I think. Excellent. I'd like to thank everyone for listening to this episode and hope you'll join us again soon when I'll be talking to another member of staff from Glasgow Caledonian University. In the meantime, please subscribe to this podcast via Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you're listening to us from. Until then, I've been Craig Telfer, and this has been the Common Good Podcast.